With that, turn with me to Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, a little bit later, in fact, near the very end of our time tonight, I'm going to give you a small statistic about the scriptures we're using tonight. And so you can wait for that. While you're finding Psalm 103, let me give you a little bit of historical note. During the most brutal period of the French Revolution, there was a time nicknamed the Reign of Terror. The Reign of Terror during the French Revolution was from September 5th, 1793 to July 27th, 1794. And during that time, the new revolutionary government engaged in a new strategy. And that was a strategy of basically eliminating all the people who were their perceived political enemies. In Paris, a massive wave of executions began, including noblemen, priests, anyone who publicly denounced the radically violent government. The so-called Committee of Public Safety exercised what amounted to dictatorial control over the government at the height of their power. They suspended the right to a public trial and to legal representation. A jury was allowed only to make the choice of total acquittal or the death penalty. Nothing in between. And in the final six weeks of the reign of terror, about 1,400 people were executed. During the whole 11th month period from 1793 to 1794, 300,000 suspects were arrested, 17,000 executed, and 10,000 died in prison without ever going to trial. In 1859, famed English author Charles Dickens published his explosive book, A Tale of Two Cities, and the title referred to the two primary settings, London and Paris, and was focused in on the French Revolution. The book was explosive and it was controversial because it revealed to the masses the horrors that had been happening when a society engages in the blanket persecution of people simply because they have certain connections rather than actually being criminals. It revealed a period in French history in which the revolutionary government dropped all pretenses of protecting the people as they were supposed to do and instead they simply began murdering all who disagreed with the government. The two main settings for the book, London and Paris, allowed Dickens to develop multiple storylines happening at one time and to show the great contrast between these two cities in this period of history. But the separate events in the two cities eventually come together in the climactic final section of the book in the unstable city of Paris. And Dickens opens A Tale of Two Cities, this novel filled with contrast with probably the most well-known opening line in English literature It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And tonight I'd like to follow suit and tell you what we'll call a tale of two kingdoms. This is a story of the very best of times in the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God, the plan of the kingdom of God unfolds in redemptive history and yet simultaneously it's the very worst of times because what we see developing at the same time is the kingdom of Satan which fights and combats the Lord at every turn. When I was planning this Millennium Series, I made a choice. It took a long time to make this choice, but as I pointed out in our first message, I made a choice to spend the majority of our time on building as wide and as deep a foundation as I possibly could, and the reason for this is twofold. First of all, belief in the literal reign of Christ on earth is mocked, it's ridiculed, 
by many as illegitimate and it's unfairly accused of, of literally being based on one single passage of Scripture, Revelation 20. And that's not a fair assessment. And the second reason I wanted to go as wide and as deep as I could, your faith in the Lord and in His plan for redemption will continue, I'm hoping and I'm praying and I trust, to be strengthened. And as you see the vastness and the enormity of God's plan, which includes the second to last major age in redemptive history, the millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ on earth, I'm, I'm praying that your strength is, is made greater, that your faith is made greater, that your resolution to serve the Lord is made greater. When you see, oh, the plan of God is vast and it goes beyond just me. Now, last time, I used the illustration of climbing Mount Everest as we examined the major building blocks of the, millennium, the Millennial Kingdom. We did the hard climbing of pushing to every successive camp, as it were, on the Mount Everest of Millennial Theology. Well, for this message, we're going to go up Mount Everest again. But I want to use our imagination and let's invent a lift or a cable car that will take us in warmth and safety to the top of Mount Everest smoothly and we just simply look out the window at the, at the scenery on our way up to the summit once again. And so tonight we're going to do a tale of two kingdoms. The Bible is the story of the creation of God's kingdom, the loss of the kingdom of God on earth, the ensuing battle with the kingdom of Satan being sovereignly directed by God leading up to the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth. And all throughout redemptive history, this has been the war. This has been the battle. And just to be very clear up front, there's never been any doubt as to the outcome of this war. In Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy of a coming Messiah, God told Satan that a man born of a woman would come to crush Satan. This man, Jesus Christ, will be the conquering king over the current prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Now, in our cable car going up Mount Everest, I've started us off in Psalm 103, but there are so many scenes that will unfold tonight that basically I'm just going to tell you a story. Uh, I'll give you some one-word markers, kind of like, oh, look out the window here and look out the window here. But for the most part, I think you'll actually get the most out of this message by just sitting back and listening and taking in the, the whole picture. So the first marker we'll just call prehistory. Prehistory. Psalm 103, beginning of verse 19. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless Yahweh, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless Yahweh, all you works of his in all places of his rule. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. We see in verse 20 the command to the angels of God to bless Yahweh. The angels were created by God to be servants, to be administrators of the kingdom of God. And Psalm 103, 19 records the establishment of the kingdom and the very first subjects are the angels. Their primary duty and their joy is to worship God, to ascribe glory and honor to the king who reigns over all. Isaiah 6, verse 3, and Revelation 4, verse 8 gives us a, a glimpse of the angels day and night, never ceasing to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, that is Yahweh of the angels. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
The first way that the angels ascribed glory to the king was to, they, they were to be witnesses to the creation. Job 38, 7 says that at the creation of all things, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The angels, a word which literally means messenger, were to be ministers or messengers of God's kingdom program. They were the executors of God's will to carry out his sovereign purposes. But it's through the angels themselves, and one in particular, that the first opposition to the kingdom of God occurs. Ezekiel 28, 1-19 records the story of Ezekiel giving a message to the earthly king of the city of Tyre, who was claiming to be the rightful ruler of Israel. But verses 12-19 through 19 of that chapter are addressed not to the king of Tyre, but to the angel who was behind the opposition to Israel. An angel who had been the chief guardian in the Garden of Eden, He was beautiful, he was wise, he was powerful. But this angel became proud and he wanted to be like God and fell into irreversible sin. Similarly, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 depicts the actual sin and fall of this angel. Isaiah 14, 12 calls him star of the morning, son of the dawn. And what was the sin of the star of the morning who would forevermore be known as Satan? His sin was saying in his heart, I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will make myself like the Most High. Revelation 12.4 tells us that Satan took one-third of the angelic realm with him to follow him in his wicked pursuit of raising his throne above God's. And now we have the beginning of the kingdom of Satan. All in the providential plan of God, but now there's a separate kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. Now the battle begins. Now Satan begins his plan, keeping in mind that God is sovereign over that as well in his own purposes. But Satan's plan, according to Revelation 12, 9, was to deceive the whole world, to to push them away from the grace of God. And so Satan became what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. And all through the New Testament, Satan's kingdom is characterized in various ways it's darkness in colossians 1 13 it's sin in romans 6 16 and 17 it's ungodliness in romans 5 6 it's unholiness in first timothy 1 9 it's disobedience in ephesians 2 2 it's death in ephesians 2 5 that's prehistory as we keep going up in our cable car if you look out the window the next marker is theocracy Theocracy, the rule of God on earth through a designated human kingly representative. And we've been to Genesis 1 a number of times. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 1, 29 and 30, God reiterated to Adam that he was God's representative to rule the earth. That God gave the earth and all that's in it to Adam to subdue, to rule, to have dominion over it. But an important element to this pristine kingdom on earth that Adam was to enjoy was fellowship with God. And in fact, we could say that the kingdom of God at its core is a state of being in in which fellowship is granted. There's direct access to God the king. That is the kingdom, direct access to God. After breaking God's law and falling into sin, Adam and Eve heard what was formerly a welcome sound. Genesis 3.8, then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. How did they know what that sound was? Because they'd experienced it before. They had fellowshiped with the Lord. They had experienced it prior to sin. This unhindered and uninterrupted communion they enjoyed with God. Very likely God in physical form directly fellowshipping with them. They had direct access to the high king Yahweh himself. The next marker we could call banishment. Banishment. When Adam sinned and was banished from the garden, the place of fellowship with God, the place where he could meet with God directly, man was separated from God. And the kingdom of God on earth, by that definition, was lost. The kingdom of God, by the definition of fellowshipping directly with God, was lost. Genesis 3, 22-24 indicates that one of the reasons for the banishment was to prevent Adam from taking of the tree of life and living forever in a state of rebellion and sin, which would have been disastrous. And so God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and stationed angels to guard the entrance. The cherubim, who throughout the rest of Scripture are often associated with guarding access to the throne room of God. And throughout Scripture... Mankind having access to the tree of life is connected directly to the kingdom of God. In the millennium, Ezekiel 47.12 describes trees remarkably similar to the tree of life, almost identical to the description of the tree of life in New Jerusalem all the way forward in the final state in Revelation 22.2 and Revelation 22.14. So they're banished. The next marker we could call curse. Curse. Because of the curse of sin and death due to Adam's sin, now every person born of Adam's line would be born into the kingdom of Satan. Their spiritual father would be Satan by default at birth. Redemption and salvation for individuals would now be necessary by faith in God and mankind will begin to be divided into the two kingdoms. 1 John 3.10 makes this division the children of God and the children of the devil. The two kingdoms living side by side on this earth. And now to approach God, a person must come by faith and by the mediation of a a blood sacrifice. God had promised Adam and Eve that they would surely die if they sinned against Him. But by means of sacrifice, God delayed their physical death. But now because of their sin, all men are born spiritually dead as children of the devil. And to approach God... Repentance, faith, and sacrifice are all necessary. The next marker we could call conscience. Conscience. Adam failed in his duty to obey God in the pristine kingdom of unhindered fellowship with the Lord. And so now that sin was part of this world and 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 the inheritance of every human being, God provided that mankind was to be ruled by the law of conscience. That built into every human being, although sinful, was an inherent understanding of right and wrong, reflecting the character of God. Romans 1.19 says that the knowledge of God is evident. It's built in into mankind. Romans 1.20 says that because of conscience and because of the witness of creation, mankind is without excuse. There is no one who can ever stand before God and say, I didn't know you were there. Yes, you did because you had a conscience. Of course, the problem is that while knowing right and wrong, mankind willfully chooses not to do what's right. Romans 1.21, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, 
But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Well, Genesis 4, 1 through 8 records that in the very first generation born to Adam and Eve, we see some following the law of conscience, aware of a need to worship and appease a holy God, and some refusing to follow conscience. Cain and Abel are sons born to Eve and both approach to worship God. Abel bringing blood animal sacrifices and Cain his grain offerings. But the difference between the two, according to Hebrews 11.4, is that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith and Cain did not. For Cain, it was a false religious duty. For Cain, it was an act of arrogance. Cain did not have a sense of spiritual need. He was not listening to his conscience, which convicts of sin and gives the need for atonement. And already we have the two kingdoms colliding. The kingdom of God, which is entered into by faith, and the kingdom of Satan, which resists faith and denies conscience. And the kingdom of Satan, represented by Cain, murders the citizen of the kingdom of God, represented by Abel. After the death of Abel, murdered by Cain, God appointed Seth to Adam and Eve. Genesis 4.25, Seth means appointed meaning it was Seth that would be the chosen line through whom genuine worshipers of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, would come. And Genesis 4.26 begins the account of Seth's family and ends the chapter concerning Seth's family, saying, Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh, that the descendants of Seth were identifying themselves as worshipers of the true and living God, that they were kingdom citizens. But the line of true worshipers by faith narrowed more and more and more and more until only Noah and his family were left. The next marker as we look out the window of our cable car, we would call government. Government. Genesis 6.8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. But the rest of the world was debauched and had rejected God and all that their consciences told them. Genesis 6.5 says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so you know the story. God decreed judgment upon the whole earth by announcing to Noah an upcoming worldwide flood. And during the construction of the ark, God even used Noah to proclaim repentance, to proclaim salvation 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness and for over a century, Noah warned the world even as he built the ark. And now in the flood, all the citizens of the kingdom of Satan would be wiped out and the few living citizens of the kingdom of God would be spared. And so what we see is that allowing mankind the privilege of having a conscience to point them to their obvious need for God and to rule society is now added to with a further decree by God to curb lawlessness in a world that had rejected him. When Noah came off the ark, God reiterated the original kingdom decree that he'd given Adam. In Genesis 9, 1 and 2 and verse 7, God tells Noah to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to rule over all the creations. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what he told Adam. So Noah becomes the new Adam, the new representative of the kingdom of God. But now a further decree to limit, to curb lawlessness in the world is given. And that is the institution of human government. In Genesis 9, 3-6, God gives the role of human government to protect and preserve people. That's the role of the government. 
In verse 3, God decrees the protection of food, giving both plants and animals now for food. Part of the role of the government is to protect people's food sources and supplies to protect their ability to survive at the basic level. And in verse 6, God decreed the protection of society by means of the death penalty that those who kill will themselves be killed. Therefore, by protecting society's basic needs and by punishing the evildoer, God was exerting control on the earth in an act of graciousness and kindness to provide an atmosphere in which the righteous, the citizens of the kingdom of God, could live in peace. But just as conscience would fail, human government would fail as well. The duty of government to protect the provisions for the people and to punish the evildoer historically are abused and more often than not turned around into the opposite of what they were intended. All of you who have read history know this to be true. In fact, Genesis 10, 9 and 10 and Genesis 11, 1 through 9 records the ultimate failure of human government when organized humanity rebels completely as a group against God. A man by the name of Nimrod led a rebellion against God as the world leader of Satan's kingdom. Noah's descendants were commanded to multiply, to scatter, to fill the earth. But Nimrod led a movement to keep all rebellious mankind together, to to gather. So he organized the building of a great tower on a plain in the land of Shinar, later known as Babylon. This tower was meant to draw all people to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, and to wholesale reject Yahweh. In Genesis 10, 9 and 10, he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty, mighty hunter before Yahweh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, I should note this. It's not that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but more in the sense of a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was hunting for souls of men. He was hunting to take all of mankind down away from the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of Satan. He was the lead human king representing the kingdom of Satan. And what we know now as the Tower of Babel was meant to be a symbol of human strength and unity under a totalitarian dictator. God, therefore, confused the language of all who gathered against him, and they were scattered. So what did this show? It showed that government can't restrain the heart of lawlessness in mankind. But from the same land, the land of Shinar, God would take a moon worshiper, and he would convert him. He would give him grace. He would give him favor. This moon worshiper was named Abram. And through Abram, God would continue the program of his kingdom on earth. And that brings us to our next marker we would call the patriarchs. Patriarchs. God made a covenant with Abram, eventually renamed Abraham. And this was an unconditional, everlasting covenant to go on forever and ever. God promised Abraham seed, both plural in terms of many descendants and singular in terms of one man who would rule. Genesis 17, 7 and Galatians 3, 16. God promised Abraham a land. Genesis 15, 18 through 21 gives the, the exact borders of that land. God promised Abraham a nation. Genesis 12, 2. Genesis 17, 4. And God promised Abraham that other nations would come from him and, and be blessed through him. Genesis 12, 3 and 17, 5 and 6. And that many kings would come from him. 
God promised Abraham blessing and protection, in particular that God would bless all who blessed him and curse all who cursed him. These same promises were extended to the miraculous child of promise, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob. And through Jacob, God would bring forth the twelve tribes of Israel from Jacob's sons. And at the end of his life, Jacob prophesied in Genesis 49.10 that from his son Judah would come the king who would reign forever. And we have in our Bibles the very first mention of the Lion of Judah. The one who would be Messiah King. And, and Judah said to that king, Jacob said of that king, rather all the peoples of the earth would bow and obey him. But the patriarch all experienced as citizens of the kingdom of God the trouble and the conflict with the citizens of the kingdom of Satan. Abraham ended up in a war with several kings and their armies after they captured some of his family. Jacob thought he was on the brink of war on two different occasions, one against his brother Esau and one against the city of Shechem. And of course, in God's sovereign plan to bring famine on the land, God had arranged for Jacob's son Joseph to become prime minister of all of Egypt in order to be able to save Jacob's family and bring them to Egypt. But it didn't turn out so well. Egypt turned on the family of Jacob and enslaved their descendants. And so yet again, the kingdom of God is in conflict with the kingdom of Satan. The next marker we would just call nation. Nation. God had covenanted with Abraham that a chosen nation would come from him. He'd shown Jacob that from his son Judah would come the king of all the earth. And the sons of Jacob and their children and their grandchildren are now in Egypt. And over several hundred years they grow into a people of several million. And so God raises up Moses as his representative to rescue his people from slavery. To bring them to the land promised to Abraham Exodus 3, 4 through 8. And, and this rescue was going to obligate the people to God. It was going to obligate them to Yahweh because he's going to give them their first and greatest Old Testament picture of redemption. He will purchase them for himself by means of rescuing them. But part of God's purpose in rescuing Israel was to wage war against the kingdom of Satan, represented by the oppressors, Egypt. God intended to get glory over Pharaoh. Exodus 14.4. Why? He says, So the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And with the ten deadly plagues and the, the decimation of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, God accomplished this purpose. After their rescue, God brought the descendants of Jacob to Mount Sinai and here through Moses gave them his law and his covenant. And now for the first time, they are officially formed into the nation Israel. They're a nation with no king but God. They're a microcosm of the kingdom of God on earth. But they were given the bigger mission to demonstrate God to all the nations. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those who introduced the world to Yahweh. Once again, Exodus 19.6. Israel was to be a testimony of the glory of living under God's governance. A nation in which God is your king. Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 28.1. Now it will be if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God being careful to do all His commandments which I am commanding you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But even as they left Egypt, 
They already weren't a purified people. They were already tainted. Some Egyptians and perhaps some slaves from other nationalities left with them. And they were immediately a bad influence. Numbers 11 verse 4 says, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And already you see that even within the ranks, a battle between citizens of God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom was already being waged, even under the umbrella of one nation. But God would use the nation of Israel in His continued battle against the kingdom of Satan Israel was to dispossess and drive out the wicked Canaanite peoples who were pagan and evil to the core. And the battle for the conquest of Canaan was a direct fight between the people of God and the people of Satan. And when Joshua, the leader of God's people during conquest, when he came to the end of his time as a leader and the people were now settling into their new land, he issued the challenge because he knew that the battle was still raging. It was just an internal one. It was within the nation. He challenged them in Joshua 24, 15, If it is evil in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. What is Joshua doing? He's acknowledging that there's a spiritual battle still raging. And it's in the hearts of people that as a nation, they were the people of God on earth, But as individuals, some were part of the kingdom of God and some were part of the kingdom of Satan. The next marker we would call judges. Judges. When Israel's king was God, it would seem from the outside that the nation was purified and that the battle was being won. But Joshua's warning proved all too prophetic. The time of the judges takes up where the book of Joshua closes and spiritual tragedy strikes because the battle continues judges 2 11 says then the sons of israel did what was evil in the eyes of yahweh and served the baals that israel as a nation was now literally serving the kingdom of satan and so god brought judges not to punish the nation but to deliver israel after god brought affliction which would lead to repentance Oftentimes, these judges operated in supernatural power as representatives of the kingdom of God. Judges 3.10, the Spirit of God came upon Othniel. The same is said of Gideon in Judges 6.34. The same is said of Jephthah in 11.29. And Samson on multiple occasions in 13.25, 14.6, 14.19, and 15.14. So the kingdom of God is being shown in power, but through these judges. And this cycle of rebellion and discipline and then mercy from God this happens over and over again a half dozen times in Judges. This back and forth battle between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan continued for several hundred years and the rebellion each time just got worse. And the end of Judges illustrates the need for a kingdom, the need for a king ruling on the earth. The Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the battle of two spiritual kingdoms continued to rage. But God had promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And he promised Jacob that Judah's descendant would rule Israel as king. So perhaps now is the time. The next marker as we look out our window of the cable car, we would simply call kings. Kings. Israel, ever impatient, became overly eager. They didn't humbly bend to God's will. They didn't humbly wait on the Lord. 
But they were eager to have a king just like their neighboring nations. From a human standpoint, Israel wanted a king to be their champion, to fight their battles. 1 Samuel 8, 5 and 20 tells us this. God disciplined Israel by giving them the king that they wanted. He gave them a king that was a tall and strong warrior named Saul who would prove in the matter of a couple of years to be a spiritual disaster and God would reject him. 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14. And in Saul's place, God raised up David. And to David, God made a promise relating all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to the kingdom battle which started at the dawn of time. God promised David an eternal throne. Psalm 89, 3 and 4 records this. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 records this promise. That David's descendant would occupy the throne of Israel forever over a kingdom that is God's kingdom and it's on this earth. And even while David was king, David's rule over Israel was seen very much as a representation of the kingdom of God. In 1 Chronicles 28.5, an elderly King David asserts that God has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh. In 2 Chronicles 9.8, even the foreign queen of Sheba testified, God has delighted in you to set you on his throne as king for Yahweh your God. And now things are getting really exciting because for, for God's promises to David to come true, His promises of an eternal kingdom with a descendant on the throne, many circumstances must happen. Israel must be preserved as an autonomous nation. Israel must be the homeland promised to Abraham in the exact boundaries promised in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. David's descendant and the rightful king of Israel must come to earth bodily, physically, in reality, to reign over the kingdom. There must be an earthly, literal kingdom in which Messiah King will rule. So even as the kings after David began to degrade in faithfulness to God, the the Davidic covenant means that although sometimes the spiritual battles between the two kingdoms seem lost, God guarantees that the war will be won. But the quick degradation of Israel after David and his son Solomon proved that even a chosen king, even a chosen king who was not divine, cannot guarantee the faithfulness and loyalty of God's people. There had to be a better king. The next marker as we travel up the mountain we will call division. Division. At the conquest, the spiritual war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan was was fought primarily between Israel and the Canaanites. Now the spiritual battle is fought within Israel, within the ranks. And this division was already being hinted at. It took a civil war, as recorded in 2 Samuel 2.17, to fully seat David as king over all of Israel. David's own son, Absalom, rebelled and temporarily seized the kingdom away from his father. In 2 Samuel 15.10-12, 2 Samuel 20.1-2 tells us of the Benjaminite Sheba attempting to take away the throne of David. An insurrection, a civil war. When Solomon was king, 1 Kings eleven twenty six 26-38 outlines the rebellion of Jeroboam against Solomon. And in fact, this was, this was disastrous. This resulted in ten tribes being taken away from Solomon's son Rehoboam and the kingdom splitting. And why did this happen? 1 Kings 12, 12-16 records that Jeroboam and the people in the north had requested lower taxes 
Rehoboam, the king, denied this request, so ten tribes rejected the Davidic kingdom. And even in that moment, God was gracious even to those who rejected the Davidic kingdom. Graciously, God offered Jeroboam, the king of the newly formed split-off northern kingdom, he offered him the chance to serve God and to lead a righteous kingdom. 1 Kings 11.38 records this gracious, generous offer by God. Instead, 1 Kings 12.26-30 records that Jeroboam promoted idolatry. He built temples on high places. He started a false feast of tabernacles, celebrated a month late in 1 Kings 12, 31 and 32. The feast of tabernacles is significant because it represents a kingdom in which God's people dwell with their king. But the corrupt version under Jeroboam started starting a, a pagan kingdom that mocked and ridiculed the actual kingdom of God. And the result was disaster. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom was carried off by Assyria, 2 Kings 17.23. And meanwhile, down south, the southern kingdom, although it took longer to ultimately rebel, was just as bad as the north. Jeremiah 3.8 said there's no difference between them. And the kingdom of Judah ends with three massive deportations in 605 BC, 597 BC, and 586 BC. At this point, it seems like the kingdom of Satan is taking the day. When you look at Israel's failure to be faithful as the representatives of the kingdom of God on earth, it's just disaster. The next marker is a sad one. Departure. Departure. The prophet Ezekiel marks a terrible and a sad day in the history of Israel. The departure of the glory of God from Israel. Ezekiel 10, 18 and 19, then the glory of Yahweh departed from the threshold of the house. Ezekiel eleven twenty two 22 and 23, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. That is the Mount of Olives. There's a sense of slowness. There's a sense of reluctance even as the glory of God departs. There's a sadness. There's a, a, almost a looking back with, with sorrow. This is a huge contrast to how the glory of God was said to rush into the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 34, and 35 and to rush into Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And in the millennial temple, when God's glory fills the temple, he'll rush in as predicted in Ezekiel 43, 5. God is quick to come to his people but he's slow and deliberate to leave his people. When the Israelites were scattered, Ezekiel 36, 19 through 21 says that the name of God was profaned and insulted. Someday though, when the Jews are back in their land as a redeemed nation, the name of God will be vindicated. Isaiah 29, 22 and 23, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 38 tells the glorious story of this vindication, but not yet. The next marker we would call prophecy. Prophecy after the split and the failure of the kingdom of Israel, with the kingdom of Satan seemingly winning the day, now the message of the prophets is future, that judgments are coming and restoration is coming, both to Israel. This is 
To put it in terms we can understand from history, this is like General Douglas MacArthur having to abandon the Philippines early in World War II, but vowing, I shall return. That's what the prophets were doing. The eminent Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost in 1990, right near the end of his time on this earth, he cataloged every prophetic passage in the Old Testament prophets, every single one that directly predicted the preservation, the regathering of a Messiah-led, Holy Spirit-indwelt new Israel in the coming age of the millennium to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And me, being Mr. Genius here, thought, well, I think I'll count how many times that Dr. Pentecost cataloged this. I gave up after 400 passages. I can't count any higher than that. The prophets everywhere say judgment is coming, but restoration is coming. The next marker we would call Silence. Silence. After a meager, weak, representative return from exile of less than 50,000 Jews, the people of God didn't hear from God's prophets for 400 years. Now a time of anticipation was building. And God's people, although they returned from exile as a remnant, they were continually oppressed by the surrounding peoples. They never had a moment's peace, really, But a few faithful are anticipating, a few are waiting, a few faithful such as Simeon, such as Anna in Luke 2.25 and 2.38, who all they're waiting for in the last years of their lives to see the Messiah come, to see the silence broken by the coming of the King. And so the next marker we would call presentation presentation in Matthew 1 through 11, the Messiah has come, he's presented, he's authenticated. The circumstances of Christ's birth are miraculous. They authenticate his identity as the Son of God. His message is authenticating. He's preaching to Israel to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is here. His works are authenticating. He does the miracles that only the Son of God can do, showing what the kingdom could be like if the people would receive him as king. But then, beginning in Matthew 11... Opposition to Jesus by the Jews began to grow and after Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, a pivotal moment, an official moment, an historical moment happened. Matthew 12, 14 through 15 says, But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And from now on, the offer of the kingdom is withdrawn and the message of Jesus is altered. Instead of immediate offers, he begins to tell his disciples that he's going away. The next marker we would call postponement. Postponement. In Matthew 23, Jesus rips into the spiritual leaders of Israel. He lays out his airtight case of their falsehood, their wickedness, their lies, their evil. In Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus laments the judgment that must yet come again, another time upon Jerusalem for rejecting their God. And in Matthew 25, 31 through 34, Jesus could not be clear that the kingdom will come not now, but when he returns and not before But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, 
Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the, what? Kingdom, which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now the rejection of Christ is complete at the cross when his own brothers in the flesh murder him. But in God's redemptive plan, it was precisely the death of Christ which would pay for the sins of all who would believe on him and pave the way for God to populate the kingdom. Not with people under conscience, not with people under a faulty government or under a failed Israel, but with people changed from the inside out and filled with the Holy Spirit for all eternity. The battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan is marked by a massive spiritual victory at the cross because it's at the cross that Satan will suffer his eventual final defeat. The next marker we would call church. Church. During the church age, the king is even now populating his future kingdom with countless eternal citizens. Paul even characterizes this age like this in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, that God rescued us from the authority or kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what's happening during the church age. Transfer of people from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And all throughout the church age, the victory being won is that more and more and more of Satan's kingdom is becoming now God's kingdom. More and more citizens of Satan's kingdom are becoming citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus said that during this age, the sons of Satan's kingdom and of God's kingdom would grow up together. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, Jesus explained that this age is like a field with both good seed and bad seed. They grow up together until the farmer harvests both and separates them for all eternity. In our ride to the top of Mount Everest, we'll make one last marker to end the trip up, but I just want you to notice this. If you're wondering why we took this trip up the Mount Everest of the Millennial Kingdom again from a different different vantage point from last week, you recall that last week we did the hard work of traveling through many different scripture texts from Genesis to Revelation. I told you I'd give you a statistic My point tonight is to illustrate the overwhelming nature of the Bible as the story of the kingdom of God leading to the millennium. Tonight, with one exception, I didn't use a single scripture that we used last week. We used 220 other verses. This is the story of the Bible. Kingdom of God overwhelming the kingdom of Satan to the glory of God, to the glory of Christ. Our last marker as we ascend to the summit Fulfillment. Fulfillment. And now we await the next event in prophetic history, the rapture and resurrection of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The earth will be embroiled with the false leadership of Antichrist and the raining down of the judgments of God in Revelation 6 through 19, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Christ will return to take back what is His to establish His kingdom on earth and finally Finally, finally, Satan will be bound. The kingdom of God has triumphed. One last note. Remember the sad day of the glory of God departing from Israel? 
how Ezekiel 11.23 says, The glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. For some reason that the text of Ezekiel 11 doesn't explain, the glory of God stopped for a time over the Mount of Olives. If we could make an educated guess, do you think this has anything to do with being a momentary statement for us to pay attention to that spot? That the glory of God stopped and hovered for a moment over the Mount of Olives before departing. Why should we pay attention to the Mount of Olives? I think the best educated guess is that Zechariah 14, 3 and 4 records the actual bodily, physical return of Christ to earth. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when He fights on the day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand, guess where? On the Mount of Olives. It's almost as if when the glory of God in Ezekiel 11 stood for a moment over the Mount of Olives, you could almost put General Douglas MacArthur's words there, I shall return. And he will. And now for us in the church age, though the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan continues, and God has placed his warriors on the earth, you and me, and so what are we to do What's our part in the tale of two kingdoms? Here's our part. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of His strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit. And to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Why can you take up this armor? Why can you be confident? Because you've ridden the cable car to the top and you see how it ends. We're not quite there yet in history, but you've been there through the Word of God. So what do you do now? You engage in the battle. You engage in the battle until our Savior comes to take us home. Our Father, we thank You for the clear plan of redemption given in Scripture. May we be faithful to fight the battles of the faith, to fight the good fight, to win the race, to be those that are faithful to You, that honor You, that glorify You, that are obedient to You, that are not caught in the schemes of the evil one, that seek to honor Your glory to seek to see the kingdom of God grown by taking kingdom of Satan citizens. To see the growth of your glorious coming kingdom. We would pray that even our little tiny church in this little corner of the world, that we would be used by the king to bring more citizens into the kingdom of Christ. 
May you use us all for his glory so that we might stand celebrating in joy and laughter and singing with tears of joy before our king someday, pointing to all the citizens we brought with us. We pray these things for the glory of the king and in his name. Amen.